and this. Welcome to the Buddha on Wall Street podcast, a series of reflections on our evolving economy and world from the perspective of Buddhism. Presented by Vadika Lin. With each podcast, there is an associated transcript with references, which you can find at the Buddha on Wall Street website at www.buddhaonwallstreet.com. This week's topic, The Tragedy of the Commons. Modern economics is based on the belief that the well-being of all depends upon each person independently pursuing their own rational self-interest. In 1968, the prestigious journal Science published The Tragedy of the Commons, a hugely influential article by Garrett Hardin. Hardin challenged the belief that the pursuit of unhindered and unregulated self-interest would always ensure the best outcome for the welfare of all. Hardin imagined a common pasture, land owned by everyone and by no one. Everyone was free to graze their livestock on the common land. An individual herdsman acting rationally in their self-interest, would conclude that it made sense to keep adding animals to their herd feeding on the common grass. But if each herdsman makes the same rational decision, then eventually the outcome is a disaster, as the common land pasture is used up. This is the tragedy. Hardin used the word tragedy not in the sense of being sad, but in the sense of inevitability. The communal ownership of property, Harding concluded, ends in disaster. Communal property cannot be managed sustainably. To avoid the tragedy, Harding argues, there are two possible solutions, both of which remove communal ownership. The first option is to take the commons out of the hands of the local people and nationalise it. The commons is then owned and managed by the state. The second option, Hardin's preferred option, is to privatise the commons. The land is divided up and handed out to individual farmers. If people are guaranteed private ownership and access to free markets, Hardin argues, then acting out of their own rational self-interest, they will take better care and responsibility for resources. In this way, tragedy is averted. Hardin is brutally realistic about the logic of his solution, advocating a system of mutual coercion, mutually agreed upon by the majority of the people affected. The best approach, he argues, is the institution of private property 
coupled with legal inheritance. Invoking the principles of Darwinian natural selection, Hardin says, those who are biologically more fit to be the custodians of property and power should legally inherit more. Acknowledging that this is not an altogether just solution, he believes that we must put up with this imperfect legal order because we are not convinced at the moment that anyone has invented a better system. He went on, the alternative of the commons is too horrifying to contemplate. Injustice is preferable to total ruin. But is Hardin right? It has to be said that Hardin's analysis looks very relevant when it's applied to our habit of pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere or overfishing the oceans. It has to be further said that Hardin is highlighting something important for the advocates of an economic system based on the principles of Adam Smith's invisible hand. Hardin is telling them that an economic system based on the pursuit of rational self-interest will not work in a free-for-all situation. Without legally enforceable order overseen by the institutions of the state or by international agreements, the economy will fail. So-called free markets still require rules and regulations. Free markets still require a state to impose regulation. But is Hardin right in his preferred solution of an unjust and imperfect system of private ownership based on a crude interpretation of Darwinian survival of the fittest? Is his other, less preferred solution of top-down state ownership and control the only viable alternative? Or is there another, very different option, based on bottom-upwards cooperation? Is Hardin wrong to rule out communal ownership? High in the mountains of Switzerland sits the village of Thurbel, where people have successfully managed the commons of their high alpine forests, meadows and irrigation waters since 1224. The village of Thurbel is one of more than a thousand separate case studies of commonly owned resources from around the world carried out by Eleanor Ostrom the only woman ever to win the Nobel Prize for Economics. Ostrom visited communal landholders in Ethiopia, robber tappers in the Amazon, fishers in the Philippines and Indonesia and Turkey, irrigation schemes in Spain, lobstermen in the United States and more, investigating how they negotiated cooperative schemes 
and how they blended their social systems with the local ecosystems. What she brought to the world of economics was common sense about common resources. She thought that if left to themselves, people would work out ways of surviving and getting along. She firmly believed that although the world's arable land, forests, freshwater and forests are all finite resources, it is possible to share them without depleting them. She concluded that women and men tend to make sensible rules for the sharing and stewarding of common resources, providing they are able to develop a system of caring for the commons from the bottom up, shaped to their cultural norms, and do not have to put up with solutions imposed from above. In this way, people and communities can often manage common resources as well as or better than markets, companies or the state. From her research, Ostrom tried to ascertain what principles make for a successful commons. The key question, she thought, was how people organise and govern themselves to obtain continuing joint benefits when all face temptations to free ride, shirk or otherwise act opportunistically. Her answer was given in Governing the Commons, a landmark 1990 book that set forth some of the basic design principles of effective, durable commons, drawn from what worked in the real world. She used the phrase design principles hesitantly, since, she argued, these arrangements were rarely designed or imposed from the top down. They usually evolved from the bottom up. Amongst the design principles are 1. Having a membership of the group that is clearly defined with a strong sense of group identity together with an agreed definition of the physical contents of the resource. 2. Ensuring that individuals affected by rules can participate in setting and modifying those rules. 3. Effective monitoring of the users of the resource and of the conditions of the resource. 4. A system of sanctions for those who violate community rules. And 5. A simple accessible access to some mechanism for conflict resolution. For example, the fishers of Alanya in Turkey resolved their disputes in the local coffee house. In order for communal arrangements to work, it is also necessary that external government agencies respect and do not interfere with the arrangements. Later in life, Ostrom also addressed the problem of climate change. Whilst acknowledging that greenhouse gas emissions are a global pollutant, 
she nevertheless thought that efforts focusing on establishing global agreements are a mistake. She argued that common resource problems are usually too organisationally and culturally complex to solve from the top down. For her, a polycentric approach is necessary, with people developing ideas and enforcing behaviour at a community, city, national and regional level in a series of nested agreements. Caring for the commons, she emphasised over and over, is something that has to be organised from the ground up. Caring for the commons, she argued, is something that has to be discussed face to face. It has to be based upon trust. Trust is essential for the fostering of cooperation and altruistic actions. The Bodhisattva is the term used in Buddhism for someone who wishes to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all living beings. A Bodhisattva always acts with kindness and compassion towards others from an instinctive desire to help relieve suffering. We might call this a pure form of altruism. Is such a pure form of altruism necessary for the successful working of those communal groups managing limited resources, as described by Eleanor Ostrom? As long as there is trust in the communal group, I don't think so. Consider an individual member of a communal group managing water irrigation for farmers. If the member flaunts the rules for the running of the group and takes more than their allocated share of water, then they run the risk of being excluded from the water supply altogether. As long as the individual member trusts that the group works fairly in its distribution of water and in such a way that the resource will be successfully sustained, it is in the self-interest of that member to fully cooperate in the group. It doesn't matter that their action is not motivated by a pure form of altruism. The effect is the same and the cooperative effort is bolstered. Moreover, the individual member who acts to begin with out of self-interest may learn from the consequences of their actions and become more inclined to behave altruistically to share in resources, and maybe even to give more freely. Garrett Hardin's market solution to the tragedy of the commons diminished the possibilities for sharing and giving. Two years after the publication of Hardin's article, in 1970, a book called The Gift Relationship was published that illustrated the importance of preserving opportunities for sharing and giving. Written by Richard Titmus, Professor of Social Administration at the London School of Economics, the book compared the blood donation systems then existing in the USA and the UK. Blood donation in the UK 
relied on people giving blood voluntarily for no financial reward. Blood was given as a gift. Donations of blood were then used for unknown strangers who received the blood at no charge. The UK system existed outside the market rules of economics and relied upon altruism, a spirit of generosity. Blood donation in the United States at that time relied very much on commercial blood banks that paid donors for their blood and then sold the blood on. The system in the USA was market-based and relied upon monetary transactions. What did Richard Titmus find in his study? When comparing the UK and the USA, Titmus found that the quantity and the quality of the blood donated in the UK were both higher than in the USA. In particular, the quality of the blood in the USA was poorer because in a market for blood, those who had the greatest incentive to supply it for money were those with the unhealthiest blood, especially drug and alcohol addicts who also had the strongest incentive to lie about their medical condition. In those days, the testing of blood donations was much less well-developed than now. But Titmus had a deeper objection to the commercialisation of the blood donor system. He believed that commercialisation of the blood donor system eroded the spirit of altruism and generally diminished the propensity of people to give to others. In this way, the gift relationship in society was undermined, something which he very much regretted. What Titmus feared was the general erosion of moral values in society by the crowding out effect of market values through the process of commercialization. By eroding opportunities for people to be altruistic, the culture of giving would be diminished and others would have fewer examples of altruistic behaviour from which to learn. In the gift relationship, he argued that when blood is bought and sold, it's not just the blood that gets contaminated. People's minds and values are also contaminated. The place in our society of important qualities like generosity and community is eroded, to be replaced with selfishness and greed. Human beings and human qualities become commodities, things to be traded just like other commodities. Interestingly, studies of blood donors show that although the initial decision to give blood may be influenced by a variety of factors, such as the convenience of a nearby clinic or by an urgent appeal for blood. Over time, the sense of an inner moral duty and the desire to help or to act on a feeling of responsibility to the community become more dominant. Eleanor Ostrom, Defender of the Commons and Richard Titmus, defender of the gift relationship, 
are kindred spirits. They deserve to be more widely known.